thinking about this as the band was practicing and getting ready. And uh, then as we were praying, we always spend a few minutes praying together, those who are involved in the service, before we, we get started. And I know I was one of the ones that did it the most. I just kept talking about how every Sunday we met at the fairground, we didn't have rain, 20 Sundays in a row with no rain. And then we come in here in the cold frame, and this morning we had rain. Uh, that's why there's stuff up in the rafters. Uh, there's a dynamic in a cold frame when there's snow on the roof and it's nice and warm in here. It uh, condenses and rains on us. So if you see me wiping my notes off or anything like that, windshield wipers on my glasses, you'll know uh, what's happening here. Let me start with a question this morning. Why are we here? I mean, I, I know why we're here in the cold frame to have church, but existentially, philosophically, why are we here? Why are we, why are we here as in, in this world? Why do we exist? You wouldn't be human if you didn't ask that question at some point. And you might have asked it at a certain point in your life when you've realized that you do basically the same thing every day. You get up, you smack your alarm, you roll out of bed, you stumble to the bathroom, you get in the shower, you get dressed, you have breakfast, you go to work, you come home, you have dinner, you go back to bed, you get up, and you do it again. 10,000 times in the course of your life, you earn your paycheck, you cash your paycheck, you spend your paycheck. I mean, sometimes you have to wonder, right? What's the point? Anyway, Happy New Year. <laughs> How about we do it all again? We were driving up the road, up the highway the other day, and there was one of those flashing, whatever it is, LED signs that they put on the side of the road. And I don't remember exactly what it said, but it was something to the effect of, Thank goodness 2020 is over. Here's to 2021. And I, having the sunny disposition that I do and the optimistic personality that I do, was driving and I thought, what difference does it make? It's just one more day flipped over on the calendar. Unless something changes, we're going to do this whole thing again. Happy New Year. <laughs> I just want to get us off on the right foot. And so here we are in our study of the whole story, and we're in Ecclesiastes. And I don't know if you've ever read Ecclesiastes before. I'm guessing that a lot of you have, but maybe some of you haven't. If you've never read it or it's been a while, let me give you a quick sum up. Life is meaningless. There, I just saved you an hour. That's what Solomon says. Life is meaningless. Literally, it's nothing. It doesn't matter, and it doesn't accomplish anything. In Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and verse 2, the very beginning of the book, this is what Solomon says. Listen to Ecclesiastes 1-2. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, 
all is vanity. So, just to make sure that you don't miss it, he uses the word five times in this one verse. He uses it 38 times in the whole book. Now, this is a very, very interesting word, and if you have other translations, that's the ESV, the English Standard Version, that says vanity and translates it that way. If you have another version, if you have New Living or NASB or NLT or any of the other hundreds that are out there, everybody interprets it differently. Some say a vapor. Some say life is frustrating, futile, pointless, useless. And you're sitting there thinking, yep, I have totally used those words to describe my life sometimes. <laughs> After a bad week or a bad month or a bad decade. Now, you know how much I love words. Words are important. And I have a word for you this morning. This is very exciting. I can tell you're all excited about it because you're almost knocking your camp chairs over to hear what I have to say. Here it is. This is a real word. Lisa will vouch for me. Onomatopoeia. How many people know that word, onomatopoeia? Okay, now how many people know what it means? <laughs> About a quarter of the people that have heard of it. That's okay. I'm going to tell you. Onomatopoeia is a grammatical term in the English language that refers to a word that is pronounced like the sound it describes. Let me give you an example. Buzz. Okay? Right? Buzz. You can hear the bees in the springtime around the flowers. Here's another one. Boom. From an explosion. Here's my favorite. Sizzle. A steak on the grill, preferably ribeye. Sizzle. Tick tock. Get it? Okay, now this matters because the word, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, so I don't know if they have onomatopoeia in Hebrew, in the Hebrew language, but the word here that we say vanity of vanities, all is vanity, all is frustrating, all is futile, all is meaningless, all is useless, is a Hebrew word, hev havel. Now, if you're going to say this, and you are going to say this, if you're going to say this, you have to say it with two breaths, okay? You can't say hvel. That's not how it's pronounced. I'm serious now. I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but I have learned this much this week to share it with you. You have to say it hev hvel, and you have to blow out, okay? So let's say it hev hvel. All right? This is what Solomon is saying. Why does he say that? Because he's saying life is a breath. It's a vapor. It's gone in an instant with no effect on anything. Now, if the wind blows at 35 miles an hour, it might knock a tree over. But when you breathe, it doesn't really affect much. I could put a piece of paper two feet in front of my face and breathe, and the paper doesn't move. It doesn't affect anything. 
And that's what Solomon is saying. Life is hevel. It's gone. Now let's look at one more key phrase, Ecclesiastes 1 verse 9, where Solomon says, what has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. That's a real pick-me-up too, isn't it? What has been is what will be. Maybe you've heard the way we say it in this culture. We say what? It is what it is. What has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. Why bother? It's all been done. Your precious, sweet little girl gets on her bike for the first time with her little training wheels and says, Daddy, Daddy, look. And you say, whatever, kid. It's all been done. It's all happened before. You're not showing me anything new. But the phrase I want you to notice in verse 9 is the phrase, under the sun. Solomon uses it 29 times in 12 chapters. Under the sun. What he's saying here is, what is is what is, and what's been done is what's been done. There's nothing new on this earth. There's nothing new here. The sun goes up, the sun goes down. We live, we die. Life on this earth why bother? It's hopeless. But you, you might be different than me. I am by nature a pessimist. I am cynical. I know you're thinking Melody is a lucky woman to be married to someone with such a sunny outlook on life. You might be an optimist, and you may be thinking, but wait, we're making it better. We're making the world better. It's messed up, but we're going to fix this. We're going to make the world a better place. Every generation thinks that. Every generation has a segment of the population who are sunny optimists and come in with all kinds of energy. We're going to fix it. We're going to make this a better place. But life on this earth is like an exercise bike. We pedal and we pedal and we pedal and we pedal and we don't move. We don't get anywhere because life is not linear. It's circular. Solomon says in Ecclesiastes 1 verse 5, the sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, they flow again. I've lived here 16 years. The little Androscoggin has run the whole time I've lived here, but there's always water in it. Where does it come from? Well, it, it comes from up the road when the snow melts off the mountains. But what about when there's no snow? Well, later there's more snow. And where does the Androscoggin go? Eventually it goes into Casco Bay and goes out into the ocean. How come the ocean doesn't fill up? Because it evaporates out of the ocean and rises up into the atmosphere and comes back down in rain. You mow your lawn this summer, guess what? 
few days, you got to mow it again. You pay your bills and feel really good until you open the mailbox the next day. Guess what? More bills. Pretty soon, your accountant is going to say, it's tax time, and you pay your taxes. And in a few months, the same guy is going to call again. Don't even get me started about fashion. I was in the mall the other day, and I saw a kid wearing acid wash. I thought, no. I lived through the 90s. I cannot go back. There will be no acid wash in my closet. Life is circular. What's happening? I know it's supposed to be Happy New Year, and this isn't very happy or hopeful But this is what Solomon is telling us. And he spends the next 10 chapters. Chapter 1, he gives this this summary. Then for 10 chapters, he describes his process of living his life. Solomon tried everything. He tried acquiring knowledge. I was thinking about our country. We spend more in our country on education than the next five countries combined. He tried acquiring wealth. The United States is the wealthiest country in the history of human civilization. He tried immersing himself in work. I don't know if we still are, but we used to produce more than any other country in the world. And he also tried living solely for pleasure. And this is something I do know that we top the world in, our American hedonism. Living life for all the pleasure that we can possibly get, healthy or illicit. And guess what? Because we could look at that and we could say, okay, well, Solomon tried acquiring wealth and it didn't work for him, but I can sit here and tell you right now, if I had just a little bit more wealth, my life would be a lot happier. Well, Solomon did all of these things and he did them to an extent that we can't even imagine. You see, Solomon didn't just try to acquire knowledge. He was the wisest man in the world. He didn't just try to acquire wealth. He was the richest man in the world. He didn't just try to immerse himself in work. He was the smartest businessman in the world. He didn't just try to access pleasure. He had access to everything you could ever imagine. And plenty of things that I hope that you can't imagine. And what did he say? In Ecclesiastes 1.14, he says, I have seen everything under the sun, and behold, all is, listen, do you see it? Hevel. And striving after the wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. We can't fix ourselves. We can't fix the world. We can't straighten it out. That's what Solomon says. What's crooked cannot be straightened. We don't have what it takes. We're proving that in this country right now. All joking aside, 2020 has been one for the ages. And what we're proving is exactly what Solomon said thousands of years ago, and that is this, we can't fix this. 
The average income in this country has skyrocketed in the last 50 years. Do you know what else has skyrocketed? Divorce, suicide, and depression. It's epidemic. Can we fix the world? I'm guessing we can't, or else wouldn't we be doing it? Wouldn't we be fixing it if we could? Now, Solomon does come to a conclusion, and it's a conclusion that we all need to hear. Because we're all wondering, we all want to know, why are we here? And so in the last chapter of the book, Ecclesiastes 12, Solomon gives us his conclusion. Verse 13 of Ecclesiastes 12, he says this, The end of the matter, all has been heard. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. This is the end of the matter. This is it. This is the bottom line. Solomon says, I've tried all of these things to the nth degree, more than the average person will ever be able to attempt. And I'm telling you, this is it. Fear God and keep his commandments. Place your faith in God and obey him. That's it. We were made for this. That's what Solomon is saying. This is what we're made for. And nothing in life makes any sense if we leave God out of it. That's why he says, under the sun, if we keep it here on this globe, none of it makes any sense. If there was another way, don't you think someone in 10,000 years of human civilization would have figured it out? Now, looking at that phrase, fear of God, and commentator Douglas O'Donnell defines the concept of fear of God this way. He calls it a trembling trust. You look at fear of God, and you, you read in the Scripture that we should fear God, and you've probably heard a lot of pastors and teachers say, well, that means we need to reverence God. We need to revere Him, not be scared of Him. And I understand that. And there's a little bit of that in this phrase. But guess what the word fear means? Any guesses? It means fear. It actually means fear. Now, yes, we need to honor him. We need to respect him. And that's tied up in the word. It's a complex word. But the plain meaning of the word fear in fear God is be afraid. Now, does God want us to be terrified of him all the time? No, he doesn't. But do you know what God wants us to do? He wants us to look at him, understand who he is, look at ourselves, understand that we are sinners, and get on our faces and humbly admit that we are in trouble without him. coming face-to-face -face with our sinfulness and humbly acknowledging hope that can only be found in Him. See, in this dark, frustrating, circular world of Hevel, we need hope. And that can only be found in humble submission to Almighty God 
in obedience to him. Notice what he says. This is the whole duty of man. Now, almost every translation puts the word duty in there. But really what Solomon is saying is, this is every man. Fear God and obey him. This is every man. This is the universal obligation of every human. We were made for this. God created humankind to tremblingly trust him and obey him. And what we need to understand and hopefully learn as we walk through life and as we read guys like Solomon and other parts of Scripture and learn from what's happening all around us is that every heartache, every misstep, every frustration in this world is ultimately a result of not tremblingly trusting and obeying him. As he closes the book in verse 14 Solomon says, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Now, certainly many are not tremblingly trusting God nor obeying him. And Solomon says, you need to understand that at the end of your life, if you are not, that everything said and done will be judged. Now, is that frightening? I think it is. I think it's really frightening. So how do we respond to all of this. We must do what we are made to do. We need to fear God and obey Him. We need to tremblingly trust Him. Now I will admit, and so can you, that this world is capable of giving us bursts of satisfaction. I don't know if that's the right way to describe it or not, but that's the way I'm going to describe it. Bursts of satisfaction. A new relationship, a new job, a wedding, the birth of a child, a financial victory that can bring us some satisfaction. You've experienced that in your life that that carries you through for a little while. But ultimately, those things fade. Even the best things in this life fade. So how do we do this? Well, that's the one story of the Bible. That's the whole story that we've been talking about. And Solomon gives us a doctoral dissertation on the whole story in this book. God has purposed to glorify himself and display his grace by redeeming people, by redeeming you, by giving you an opportunity to tremblingly trust and obey him and make sense out of this life here on this earth through Jesus Christ and his sacrifice. And that's why when we come to this point and we read the book of Ecclesiastes and it's It's a journey going through there. I'm telling you, sometimes you think, man, what is this guy thinking? He's going to make me want to jump off a bridge or something. But as he takes us through and brings us to this conclusion, and we bring that into the New Testament, I can't help but think of Jesus' words in Matthew 11. In verse 28, when he says what? Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. 
and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Life's burdens weigh us down. Do you know when you're living life and you're facing whatever it is that you have to do in the course of your day or your week? I know I do this a lot. Melody says I do it all the time. I sigh. I'm a sire. I don't know. I don't, I don't know if it's my personality or my physiology, but I sigh. <sighs> you know what that is? That's Hevel. It's life's burdens. They weigh on us, don't they? And we carry them around. And that's what Jesus is talking about when he gives this invitation. I can't, I look at those verses and all I think is like a flashing sign saying, invitation, come this way. And he offers himself as a solution to the frustrations and the futility of life. And all of those burdens that weigh us down, he promises rest. Notice there in that verse, he says, you'll find rest for your soul. The rest that your soul seeks is found in trusting Jesus. That's the invitation of the cross. And that's what we're going to celebrate together here this morning in communion it's the thankfulness that the invitation was offered that Christ willingly allowed himself to be taken to the cross, to be nailed to the cross, to shed his blood, to give his life, so that our hearts could be cleansed and that we could be saved. And so I'm going to invite you this morning, the band is going to lead us in a song, but I invite you this morning to eat the bread and drink the cup or some on the back table, the little communion cups when you came in there. I hope you grabbed one. If you didn't, maybe somebody could grab some of those and pass them out. If you don't have one, raise your hand and somebody can bring you one. But we offer ourselves willingly before God and we say thank you for all that you have done for us. What does Jesus say? He says, come, you sinners, poor and needy. Weak, wounded, sick and sore, thirsty, burdened, ruined. Jesus Christ offers us life. If you have experienced that, then this morning I, I would invite you to give thanks with us for that. As the band sings, quiet your heart. Go ahead when you're ready and eat the bread and drink the cup. As we celebrate and give thanks for what Christ has done for us. Father, thank you for the gift of Jesus Christ, for his willingness to go in my stead, that I might have salvation, that I might have redemption. As we quiet our hearts this moment, Lord, we, we praise you and we thank you for that gift. And we acknowledge that often, even as Christ followers, we find ourselves burdened by the cares of life, we are weighed down. 
And I pray that each person that's here this morning would find rest for their souls in him. As we celebrate and give thanks this morning, Father, I pray that you would be honored in Christ's name.